Today's scripture reading comes from selected passages from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was the cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. For the past several months, we've been looking at uh, the book gospel according to John. And the book of John teaches us who is Jesus Christ. And we're at chapter 11, which marks roughly halfway to the end of the book, chapters 1 to 10, which we looked at. Uh, we see something very, very interesting. We look at chapters 1 to 10, the word love appears seven times. Only seven times in chapters 1 to 10. 
But in chapters 11 to 21, the word love appears over 50 times. What does that say? What does that teach us? That the more you learn about Jesus, you learn about his love. That his love and his character are intertwined. And, and if you think about this, chapters 1 to 10 really captures the entire first three years, the entire three years of his ministry. Chapters 11 to 21, that's the entire second half of the Gospel of John, focuses really on the final period of Jesus' ministry and life here on earth. And what that means is that John is actually focusing half of his account on the last moments of Jesus' life. And we're seeing this in the beginning with Lazarus' death and resurrection. And as this narrative really starts to intensify, the word love constantly appears. So the more we focus on the mission of Christ, the more we focus on the power of Christ and the life and the ministry of Christ, we're going to be focusing on his love. Jesus' love is rich. It's the richest. Jesus' love is powerful. It's the most powerful. And this passage teaches us, this passage teaches us an amazing claim then of Christ. It's what separates Jesus from every other religious leader, every other religion in the history of the world. This claim that he is the resurrection. Nobody else would ever make that kind of claim in the history of the world. What do we learn from it? There are three things. The wisdom of Christ, the comfort of Christ, the power of Christ. The wisdom, the comfort, the power. Those three things. First, we're going to focus on the wisdom of Christ. <clears throat> in verse 3, it says that Jesus loved Lazarus. You constantly see three times over and over in the beginning of this text, Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. So why does he wait? Why does he wait? He really loved them so much. Lazarus was clearly a close friend of Jesus, and he was sick. By the time you get to verses 5 to 7, we know that Jesus intends to wait two more days before beginning a two-day journey, a journey to where he was headed, which is back in towards Jerusalem, was going to take at least one to two more days. So in total, Jesus waits four days before he gets to see Lazarus. And by verse 14, we read that Lazarus is already dead. But Jesus says this. He says, this is for your sake. I've let Lazarus die. This is for your sake so that you may believe. Meaning that even in sickness, even in death, Jesus is always processing his life. His work, he's very focused on his trust in God. He wants you to believe. So he's saying, I trust. Trust me. This is all about trusting. What does it teach us? First, it teaches us our state in sin, who we are in sin. Sin is deadly. Sin is like a disease. It's got no earthly cure. Sin is contagious. It's going to get us all. It's going to wipe, off, wipe away all of us from the face of the earth. If you've ever read Shakespeare's Hamlet, one of my favorite books, Shakespeare's Hamlet, what does it teach us? Shakespeare, his whole intent in teaching the world about sin is that sin is like a disease. And it doesn't matter if you're the king or the jester. Everybody in the book of Hamlet dies. Everybody who's been infected by sin from the king on down is dead by the end of that book. Sin is a disease. It's going to spread to everyone, whether you're the king, whether you're a mother, whether you're a queen, whether you're a prince, whether you are Yorick the jester. Shakespeare is telling us you can't escape sin. You can't escape its deadliness. You can't escape, escape its contagion. You can't escape the loss, the brokenness, the pain of sin. In sin, we're all like Lazarus. We're dead. In verse 1, he's sick. In verse 11, he's asleep. By verse 14, he's dead. 
Like Lazarus, every one of us is in the tomb. The second thing it teaches us is that sometimes Jesus is going to wait before he answers us. Yes, he loves Lazarus. John wants to make it clear that Jesus loves Lazarus. But he waits, and he waits until there's really no more hope, until he's dead. And why? Jesus says, it's for your sake. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to mature you. For your sake, so you may believe. It means that Jesus, being in Christ, being a Christian, loving Jesus, it may include trouble for us. It may include suffering for us. It may include living a life that is oftentimes puts us into very uncomfortable, discomforting situations. Some people in the narrative, as we, as we read, they start to doubt Jesus' love. When he gets there, they he weeps. There's a group of people that says, wow, he really loved Lazarus. It was clear. They confirmed it. They affirmed that. But then there's a group of people that says, but he saved that blind man, right? So did he really love Lazarus? This passage is teaching us, you never doubt God's love. If you're sick, he loves you. Sometimes we feel like our lives are over. You know, we make some major mistake, and our lives as we know it are over. Jesus weeps when our lives are over. It's easy for us to think that when we do something wrong, and we will live a bad life, that we're gonna experience bad consequences as a punishment. It's easy to think that way. It's actually natural, and simple to think that way. It's easy to think the counterpoint to that, that if you live a good life, in fact, it's a motivation for why many people live good lives, because if I live a good life, then I deserve something good to happen in my life. Then good things will have come my way. That's, that's exactly how we think. But Jesus and the cross blows away both paradigms. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. You want to talk about good? Jesus is righteous. Jesus lived the perfect life, and yet he suffered more than anybody. He lived a horrible life. He died. He died on the cross, full of shame. And what that means is that the answer to the question of suffering, the meaning of suffering is a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more complex than we think. Without suffering, you'll never be able to see how finite life is how small our lives are, that we're not in control, that we want control, we were never in control in the first place, that control in our lives is an illusion. We were never in control, but we try. We try to gain control, don't we, in our lives? We try to gain control. We want power, because power gives us a sense of control. We want the next higher salary, because if we have money, and by the way, money doesn't solve most of the major problems in our lives. Money is not the cure in our marriages. Money is not the cure in our sicknesses. Money is not the cure in our addictions, for that matter. But we think that if we just have enough money, because there's a sense of control in our lives. The reality is we don't have control. We do these things to prevent suffering, and we can't prevent suffering. That's the problem, that's the brokenness of these things. By trying to do that, we're actually resisting why sometimes we suffer. Ernest Becker, Ernest Becker is a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, who lived early 1900s. And um, he wrote, his seminal piece of work was this book called The Denial of Death. And he basically says this, the whole thesis of The Denial of Death, Pulitzer Prize winning book, is this. He says, the irony in our condition 
is that our deepest need is to be free from the anxiety of death. And he goes on to explain that that's the reason why we're greedy. That's the reason why we're lustful. That's the reason why we're carefree. Even being carefree, that's the why we're just in denial. We're always in denial. We want to avoid and prevent thinking about the fact that one day we will pass. And the very nearness of that truth puts us in a frenzy of anxiety and neuroses, he says. That's how he explains away our neuroses. All of our neuroses, all of our accomplishments, all of our greed is really to deal with, to cope with the anxiety that one day we will die and we don't know when that day is. The death of Lazarus teaches us that because of sin, we will die. Today, you watch movies, you read books, we're taught to embrace death, that death is a good thing, that death is a passage, that death is a friend, that death is something natural, it's a part of your life. Why does Jesus weep? Come back to the question. Why does Jesus weep? The Bible teaches us that death is not natural, that death is not your friend, that death is evil, that death is your enemy, that death is horrible, it, that death intends to beat you down until you are left to nothing. Now the disciples, they get that. They see the urgency of Jesus' friend who is about to die. He says, are we going to go or what? But Jesus intends to wait two more days. Why does he wait? And this is the reason why Jesus waits. If you think about it, if upon hearing the news that his good friend is dying, and Jesus says, guys, we need to get our stuff together. We're going to go back in. We've got to hurry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Let's go. Let's go. Don't pack. We've got to run. Who's in control? Who's in control? Because he says in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In other words, I am in control. This is not going to end in death. I am in control. I will not bow down to death unless it is of my accord, unless I agree to it. Even my own life. He says, no one can take away my life unless I lay it down. That's what he says, of my own accord. And so he delays. He delays to a point where the human mind can no longer conceive the faithfulness of God. In suffering, when we suffer, and I want to bring this home, it's really easy to become hardened. It's really easy to grumble when we suffer. That's natural. Because it's really your way of saying, I have no control, and I hate it. I hate the fact that I have no control. And so what we do is we work hard. We work hard to fight against that. We resist that. That's one option. The other option is to become softer, to become tender, because you are broken, because it, there is pain, because you realize how finite our lives are, and because death is humbling us. Suffering either makes you more of a person, because you realize what your limitations are, you actually realistically realize who you really are, and you can rest in the eternal reaches of God's grace, in His eternal love, in his eternal strength, in his care. That makes him more of a person. Or you become less of a person because you become bitter. And that corrodes you. That anger corrodes you. You can't get over things. You can't cope with things. And so we resort to all sorts of stuff, whether it's medications, whether it's some addictions, whether it's just escaping, constantly avoiding the possibility of brokenness like that. 
that makes us less of a person. And that starts to create a cycle of anger and bitterness and anxiety and suffering, more suffering. But if you see why Jesus delayed, it's not because he's not in control. Jesus didn't raise up his hand and say, what can I do, guys? Come on, what can I do? He's going to die. That's not what he says. He actually says the opposite. He says, this will not end in death. I mean, Lazarus must have been very, very sick. This will not end in death, he says, but I am in control. Trust me. Look at the wisdom of Christ when it doesn't answer our prayers. Look at the poise of Christ. Do you see him rattled? Look at the poise of Christ. And he still weeps. It's not like it's callous. Notice when he gets there, knowing what's happening, he still weeps. He's still showing compassion. Pray your fears. Pray your anxieties. Pray your struggles. Pray your needs. Pray your weaknesses. Just because he hasn't answered doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. Doesn't mean he's not there. Plunge your fear. Plunge your struggles. Plunge your losses into the wisdom of Christ. Into the poise of Christ. Into the delay. And trust. And wait. And obey. Mary and Martha, they're the ones that sent word to Jesus, right? And what did they do? Did they come chasing after Jesus? No. They waited. They trusted. You know why? Look at what they said. They said, the one you love is sick. Mary and Martha, they didn't send word, the one who served you well is sick. The one who always obeyed is sick. That's not what they said, because then it would be a demand. Then it's you owe me. It's the one you love. And I trust that you love. So you'll get there. You'll answer. I trust. I can wait. That's the wisdom of Christ. Becoming our wisdom. The second point is the comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ, we see this in verses 17 and 19, this kind of very unique discourse between Jesus and Mary and Martha, or Jesus and Martha and Mary, rather. Jesus arrives, and we notice that many of the Jews of kind of gathered around Lazarus to comfort the family. And that shows us, it really is an indication of, of the prominence of this family in some, in some ways. But, but hearing Jesus coming, Martha kind of walks away from that crowd and he goes to meet with him. And Jesus says to Martha in verse 23, your brother will rise again. He says, your brother's gonna rise again. And in verse 24, Martha says, yes, he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. In other words, I know, Jesus, I get it. I know, I trust you that one day, there's going to be an end to death altogether. You're going to put a stop to all of this brokenness once and for all. One day, everything that's painful, everything that's wrong, everything that's broken will be put back together again. All injustice will die, and there will only be justice. All brokenness will die, and there will only be healing. All things that have gone wrong will be overturned, and there will only be right. There will only be good. I get that. Death itself will be flipped around upside down. I trust that. But then Jesus says something very remarkable in verse 25. He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. I get to say when you die. I have power over death. Don't write that off. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't write that off. Don't use your religious knowledge to write that off either. Death answers to me. I have power over life, new life. I have power over that. All of it rests on me, he says. Where I am, when I show up, death starts to look the other way. When I show up, brokenness starts to reverse just by my presence. 
Not just on the last day. Yes, on the last day. It will all be overturned. It's true. But I am the last day. I am the beginning. I am the end. Look how many times he challenges Martha to believe. Verse 25 to 26. I'm going to read this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. He ties belief in life. If you believe, you will live. Even though you die. And if you live and believe, you will never die. Do you believe? Do you believe? That's what he asks. He's saying, place your trust in me. And when you die, you will not even stay dead. You're going to rise again. All your suffering, all your pain, all your loss will actually bow and succumb to me. You're even going to have a new body, he says. I'm the resurrection. You're going to have a new, if you hate your body, if you hate your figure, you're going to have a new figure one day. And it's going to be perfect. You're going to rise again, and it's going to be renewed. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You're going to rise again, but you're going to be into a new life. The Greek word, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. That Greek word life is translated here, is, is a very unique word, zoe. In the Greek, there are two words for life. The most commonly used word for life in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is the word bios, biology. It's where we get the word biology. It means physical life, bread, water, life. Jesus isn't talking about that here. He's not telling you that you're going to have a new bios. He's talking about the fullness of life, the quality of life, the blessing of life. He says, I am the resurrection, new life, and the blessing, the fullness of life. I am that. That means all of our search for the fullness of life, the enrichment of our lives, whether you find it in your education, whether you find it in just growing in status, or in just knowledge per se, or just in your job, and your career path, having lots of children, whatever it is that gives you a sense of fulfillment, fullness, fulfillment. He says, I am that. The end of that road, I am the end. The end of that road is me. I will give you that. That is who I am. That is what I do. And it's found and it's lumped into my character. And so he's saying, I, if you want that, if you have a bro- think about this, if you have a broken family, what he's saying is you have a new family. Come to me, you have a new family. Broken relationships in your life, you say, oh, my life is so messed up. How am I ever going to recover from this? I hate my career. How am I ever going to recover from that? I've made mistakes. In Jesus, you have a new family. In Jesus, you have new relationships, redeemed relationships. Even though they're broken, even your work will be redeemed. You know, in the Bible, work existed before sin even existed. That means even in heaven, we're going to work. There's going to be workers in heaven. We're all going to have jobs. Heaven is not the end or the absence of work. You ever try to, you say, oh, I just need a vacation. You go away for a long period of time. You stop working for a while. You go crazy. You know why? Because we're built and we're designed to work. Working is a part of something. It's a spiritual thing. It's lumped into the spiritual DNA of our souls. We're designed to work. We're designed to, but we're designed not to find fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment in our work. That's what creates, that's out of our brokenness. And so he says, you're going to find even work that's redeemed in Him. Lots of people, they're, they're afraid to let Jesus Christ into their lives because they're afraid that it's going to cause them to miss out. You know, I have all my friends, are just, they're just having a great life. 
And I feel like I'm going to miss out if I get closer and closer to Jesus. And what they're really saying is that I'm afraid that knowing Christ is going to decrease my options, decrease my potential, decrease my freedom, decrease my joy. But Jesus right here is saying what? Martha, let me in. I am the resurrection. You want, you want fulfillment? I am that. Let me in. And you have increased options, increased potential, increased freedom, increased joy. You're going to get a new life. You're going to get a new body. You're going to get a fuller life even now. A greater quality of life. It's going to increase all of who you are. It's going to make you more of who you are. What does that mean right now? Are you angry? If you're an angry person, that means in Christ, as much as you can't conceive it, even if you can't conceive it, you can be healed. If you're living in guilt, even though it's hard to project not living with that guilt, even a month from now, you can be healed. That's what that means. Some people live with lots of shame. Shame, shame means there's something in my life that's either happened to me or that I've done. And by the way, if it's happened to you, there's no need for guilt or shame, right? But if it's happened to me and I can't share it, I don't want anybody to find it, but that's corrosive. What's going to happen is that's going to start eating away at you in other ways, and it comes out. It just has a way of coming out. That's the brokenness. That's the death that's working in our lives. That's sin working in our lives. And yet Jesus says, come to me. You're doing that because you want fullness, and you think by letting it out, by opening up, that's going to that's gonna hurt you. Come to me. Open it up to me. And you can be healed. That's what he's saying. We tend to fight for power, fight for control, fight for wealth, because really we're losing control in our lives. Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. He doesn't say, I will be the resurrection of the life. He's not talking about tomorrow. He's not saying, I was, and you can lose it if you have it. That's not what he's saying. He says, I am. I am the resurrection. That means right now, that resurrection and that fullness of life is for you. It's for you. It's what makes Jesus' work on the cross, that event of the cross, it's what makes it so personal for you because it's for you. Just like Lazarus, we're in the grave. Just like Martha, just like Mary, they can't stand around, they're helpless, they can't do anything about it. Just like us, we get to walk and look at a funeral, observe it, a viewing, see the tomb, and the suffering and the weeping, there's nothing we can do about it. That's our lives. Only Jesus can say, I will not let death have the final say in your life. I will give you a new life. Free from hurts, free from failure, free from regrets, free from your shame, free from fears. I will protect you. I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to protect you. Martha says, I believe, basically. And saying what she said, she's saying, I trust. You trust. There's this passage at the end of Revelation, very end of Revelation, also written by the same author, where he says that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I don't know how that's possible, but he, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And it's every hurt he's counting. Every hurt, every pain he's counting. Because he knows. Now we get to Mary's part here, verse 32. She falls at Jesus' feet. And what she's doing there is um, in her weakness, in her brokenness, probably because she doesn't even have the energy, and she finally sees Jesus. She puts herself in this undignified position. 
Today, when we're suffering, we expect people to coddle us. Because we do that with our children, because probably in our generation, growing up, we, we were so not coddled, um, and, or our parents were so not coddled, they were used to coddling us, perhaps. But really, when we suffer, when we have pain, we expect to be coddled. Oh, life is so hard. Oh, life is so rough. Oh, no, I just want someone to hear me. I just want someone to see me. I just want someone to listen to me. Mary's in lots of pain here, right? Functionally, what does she do wrong? Lots of pain, just suffering. What does she do? She approaches Jesus, and she just lowers herself. She could have been like, why couldn't you get here, have gotten here two days ago? She could have easily said that, right? And it seems like that's what she's saying here. Lord, if you were here, uh, I'd know that my brother would not have died. But really what she's saying is, I know that you have so much power. If you were only here, my brother probably would have been living. He probably would have remained alive. I trust you that much. I know who you are. I trust in your power, your strength. You could have saved my brother. I know it. And yet she still has that trust. But even now, she says, she's in a lot of pain. But look, there's no power play. There's no power play with Jesus. To be able to, Jesus has been walking for two days, which means his feet are a mess. In those days in the roads, there, were, there was no trash system back then. There was no waste disposal. So when you're walking for two days, you're just walking through trash for two days. And here's this woman. The glory of a woman in those days was her hair. She lowers herself at his feet. She lowers herself. Completely undignifies herself. She doesn't act if God owes her. She doesn't act as if she's going to make demands or she's entitled. And here's Jesus. He sees Mary. He sees Martha and Mary. They're broken and they're hurting. And he sees how much they trust him. They say, gosh, if you were just here, I just know that he would, he would have made it. He says, take me to the grave. And you get to verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? What does he do? Jesus wept. He cries. All around him, people are crying. There's consoling. There's death. There's rotting. There's corrosion. All around him. He sees death. He sees the cost of sin. He sees the toll that it's taking all around him. People are crying. People are overwhelmed and broken. And yet, when Lazarus was sick, even though he knew Lazarus had died, look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the calm of Jesus. And yet here, he weeps. He sees it, he weeps. Look at the heart of Christ. Look at the compassion of Christ. Here's Jesus' ultimate power, ultimate potential. And yet, he's just broken when he sees death, taking its toll. Why does he do that? A parent understands this. You have a perfectly healthy parent who looks at his child who's got a fever and is sick and is in bed. The parent is perfectly healthy, goes to work all day, may even need to do some duties at night at home. But when he sees his child, what does he do at work? He can't stop thinking about his child. He's breaking. And he sees this child that's used to just running around and laughing and having fun. He's just sick and in bed. When you see a child, it's, there's nothing more pitiful and pathetic, right? right? And it's compassion, desiring than a child that's sick in bed. 
right? Completely helpless. This parent is hurting. This parent is just dying. This parent will say, I would give anything to take that child's sickness away from him. I would take his place. That's what a parent does, right? That's a, a good parent. All parents feel that way, right? Jesus is saying, when he weeps, yes, he's got power. He can take it away. He says, for, your, for his glory and for your good, so that you may believe he's done this. And yet, in that, seeing what death is doing, seeing the toll that sin takes, he's saying, I've chosen to tie my joy and my happiness in your well-being. So when you're broken, he's broken. When you're hurting, he's hurting. When you're suffering, he's suffering again. That's Jesus. In his life, he's chosen to tie his happiness with people who are helpless. And so he completely loses it. Natural selection operates differently. People are proponents of evolution and natural selection because natural selection says only the strong survive. But that doesn't explain then. Natural selection doesn't explain then why do we care so much for weaker children? Why do we care so much for broken children? Children with diseases, uncurable diseases for that matter. It's love. There's no answer for that. Love chooses to tie our happiness in the happiness and the joy of somebody else. Just like a parent. What that means, when you choose to love somebody, you're no longer free. You're no longer a free spirit. When you don't love somebody, first of all, when you don't love somebody, you think you're free. You can wreak havoc. If you don't love somebody, you can run through and you can sexual conquest one after another. You don't care who you're hurting because it's all about you. When you love somebody, you've chosen to tie your happiness and joy into the joy of somebody else. Hurting them, when you hurt them, you hurt, it hurts, doesn't it? It really hurts. It breaks us. Jesus is looking at his friend's state He's struck with death, and he weeps. You only weep for something you value, that you've lost. I mean, you have to really value something. I have things that I value a lot. When I was in high school, I had baseball cards. To this day, I still have them. You can call them a small treasure chest, right? I mean, it's got, I mean, it's got monetary value and worth, but is it worth a lot compared to other things I have? Probably not. I have things that are probably worth a lot more. If I were to lose those things, would I weep over them? Probably not. You only weep over something that you truly treasure. You will weep over things that you treasure, that you value the most. What does that mean? We're Christ's treasure. That's what that means. A Christian is shaped by the truth that he or she is Christ's treasure. On one hand, that's going to humble us. That's going to humble us because... All we've done is sin. We've done nothing to deserve that. All we've done is sin and run and ignore and neglect and break things. That's all we've done all our lives. It's going to take us straight to the grave. We are completely powerless to even stop that sin train from rolling. But on the other hand, and that's going to break us. That's going to humble us. But on the other hand, that's going to give us confidence. Why? Because you know you're treasured. The gospel shows us that you are treasured. In verse 36, you know, people, they see Jesus weeping, and they remark, they say, wow, see how much he loves him? 
See how much Jesus must have loved Lazarus? But then there are people that actually remark. And they say, you know, if he really loved Lazarus, he would have healed Lazarus. He didn't have to come here. He could have just said, wherever he was, I'm going to heal Lazarus, right? He healed the blind man with a word. Just a few chapters prior, he healed the blind man with just a word. And Jesus hearing this, verse 38, it says, Jesus once more deeply moved. What does that mean? On one hand, Jesus hurts when we hurt. Jesus is broken when we suffer. But on the other hand, he's even more moved when we doubt his love because we hurt. He hurts about that too. He's moved by our grief. But he's also moved by our bitterness. He's also moved by our doubt, by our anger. You know what that means? You can go to him with disappointment. You can go to him with your bitterness, with anger, with pride, with hurt, with doubt. Psalm 88 is one of the most peculiar psalms in the entire Bible because there's no part of that psalm. If you go to Psalm 88, of the 150 psalms that we have in the Bible, Psalm 88 is the most unusual and peculiar psalm because none of that, there's not a single phrase in that psalm that is redeemed. It's just one person praying to God and complaining about all the suffering that they're enduring. And at the end, basically saying, please just kill me. Please just kill me. Take my life away. And you know why it's in the Bible? If you think about it, that's an amazing thing. Who's the psalmist praying to? He's still praying to God. We can go to God with all of our suffering. Because he still knows God heals. And he's moved when we doubt. Will you plunge your sorrows and your pain and your hurt in the grace of God? Because you will find a lasting comfort and a lasting hope. You will do that. So we have the wisdom of Christ. We have the comfort that comes with knowing Christ. Lastly, we have the power of Christ. Lazarus was raised again. Amazing power. No one expected Jesus. You could tell because when he says roll away the stone, they go, are you sure you want? I mean, he's been dead for four days. There's probably odor. He's probably rotting. Nobody, not Martha, not Mary, expected Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, if you know anything about the religious culture of their day, the concept of a bodily resurrection was very, very foreign, which is why even when Jesus resurrected, that was, people say, well, they must have, the disciples must have planned this. Back then, the concept of a resurrection was never bodily in that way. It would have been inconceivable. But Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, thank you for hearing me. And then he, verse 43, he calls out to Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out from the grave. Now, commentators and scholars, they've said a couple things that are very interesting here. And it's almost kind of like a sarcastic comment here. This one, when he called Lazarus out, he called him by name because in just a chapter prior to, right, John chapter 10, he says, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, they listen to my voice, I call them out each by his name. So he says, Lazarus, come out. He's calling him by his name. The second thing we see is that what is new life? We are dead. We are all dead. New life only comes when Jesus calls. But the commentators say, Jesus' voice must have been so powerful. He must have such control over death that he had to call out Lazarus. But if he just, if he just he's at a funeral, he's at a tomb. If he said, come out, all the stones were rolled away and all the bodies would have come out, right? That's the power of Christ, amazing power. And yet, this is considered a minor miracle, a very minor miracle, why? Because Lazarus is gonna die again. It merely points to a greater miracle. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, we will all be raised at the last day. We will all be raised. What that means is, 
And this is really why he's so moved. In seeing the tomb, and people are doubting him. He says, roll away the tomb. It's an amazing sight. And he calls Lazarus out, knowing why. In order for Lazarus to leave the tomb, somebody must enter it. In order for Lazarus to rise, somebody must fall. In order for Lazarus to be absolved of the payment, somebody must make the payment. In order for Lazarus to live, somebody must die. Jesus is deeply moved again. He's just torn apart. Why? Because he knew. He knew that it would have to be him. You never doubt the love of Christ. So as he gives Lazarus a new life, he knew that he would be giving up his own. As Lazarus is coming out of the tomb, he knows that he's going to be going into the tomb. The fate was sealed way in the beginning of the passage. When he hears that Lazarus is sick and he says, we must go, the disciples say, are you sure you want to go back to Jerusalem? The last time we were in Jerusalem, they tried to stone you to death. They were ready to stone you. Are you sure you want to go back there? Jesus knows that going back for his friend is going to set a course of events that will lead to his death. He knew that. And yet, do you see him afraid? Do you see him worried? Look at the calm of Christ. Look at the poise of Christ. Why? In the face of death, in the face of angry people who are in Jerusalem, in the face of pressure, in the face of weeping and doubting, knowing the disciples will soon abandon him, in the face of sin, in the face of Satan, in the face of death, there is calm. And he says, it's for you so that you may believe. He's talking to the very people that are going to abandon him. For you so that you believe. Look at the resilience of Christ. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the hope that we have in Jesus. Look at the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at the courage of Christ. Why? He says, for my, you know what he's saying here by doing this? He's saying, for my friends, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. There's no barrier I wouldn't cross. There's no death I will not risk. Not just risk my life, but I will sacrifice my life. Everyone's willing to die for something that they treasure. I treasure you. I will be willing to die for you. And he did. Jesus Christ didn't come to just be a great teacher or a religious leader. He came to be our substitute. That's why he came. At the end of the chapter, Caiaphas, the high priest, he says, it's Jesus. Knowing, seeing all the ruckus, people are plotting, he says, it's Jesus. He must die. And they plot to arrest him, and they plot to kill him. What does that mean? You just can't be neutral about Jesus. If you really had an encounter with Christ, not a single person who's ever had an encounter with Christ, an encounter and understanding his claims and seeing his character, his claims and his character, they're too remarkable. They're so otherworldly that you have to decide either to place your full trust in Him. All of your life has to be shaped around Him or you've got to place Him under arrest and crucify Him. One or the other. You can either embrace Him as King or you can crucify Him as a criminal. One or the other. The night that He was betrayed, Jesus cries out, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. All at this point, we see courage and honor, Him risking his, for his friends. And yet at Gethsemane, he says, my soul is not overwhelmed to the point of death. He's reflecting on what's going to happen to him on the cross the next day. And he just comes completely undone. Completely torn apart. That's what he's saying. I'm being torn apart. Here in this passage, he's calm. Even in the face of being arrested, he's calm. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took the penalty that we deserved. And he dies. 
And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm waiting. And I'm mourning. And I'm in pain. And I am suffering. And you have left me for dead. You have abandoned me. You have forsaken me. What he's saying is, you've turned your face away from me. And I'm suffering the ultimate pain. And the ultimate sorrow. The ultimate rejection. The ultimate abandonment. I'm completely alone. There's no relief. There's no comfort for me. I'm praying. I'm calling out. I will not be heard. I've lost complete power, complete control. He says, my God, my God. Whenever you see two phrases addressing a person in a doublet like that, in a Hebrew language, my God, my God, you're crying out. You're being emotive in your response. Jesus is mourning on the cross. That's what that means. In thinking about the Father who has left him, it has torn him apart and he is crying and he is weeping because that is the ultimate loss, to be separated from God. In all the other cases, Jesus is poised, but here he's torn apart. Why? Because the weight of God's wrath is falling on him. He's suffering the ultimate abandonment, the ultimate death. And yet, he still trusts. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. My God, my God. He still calls him his God. My God. He says, You've abandoned me, but you are still my God. Even in the face of suffering, even in the face of death, even in mourning, that means it's okay to mourn when you lose something. It means it's okay. But yet, even in mourning, he still trusts you. There's an undercurrent of trust that gave him an undercurrent of poise in his life. Why did he do that? Jesus Christ was alone, so that we would never be alone. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would be accepted by God. Jesus became finite. The infinite became finite so that the finite could become infinite. The strong and the powerful became weak so that the weak can become the strong and the powerful. Jesus died so that we could rise again. Jesus became empty. He was emptied of his fullness. He says, you are my fullness and you have departed from me so that we could have the fullness, the Zoe life. You could doubt God's love for you. It's easy to doubt God's love for you, especially when you suffer. But you would never doubt that God loved his own son. And he said it. This is my son, whom I love. Right? Mark chapter 1. The heavens opened up. The spirit of God descended on Jesus. He said, this is my son. He's doting on his son. And yet, by the way, can you imagine the pain that even God is experiencing? We look at our children and we say, wow, I would be willing to take his place in his sickness. Here's God looking at his son on the cross, and he's about to abandon him because of sin. He did that for you. That means you are God's treasure. That means you are loved by God. You may doubt God's love for you, but you would never doubt God's love for his son. And yet, what did he do? He sent his son to the cross to suffer the ultimate suffering. Why? For you. Never doubt God's love for you. The most perfect man that ever lived, that ever walked the earth, suffered for you. That brings meaning to our suffering. It's not punishment. God is not doing that to punish us. But so that through that suffering, we would be mature so that we could believe. Trust in the Lord. This is why we can wait, even when it seems impossible. Because God hears us, God knows us, even weeps for us intercedes for us, prays for us. Trust in his wisdom. 
Experience His comfort. Believe in His power over sin, over death, and you will rise again. Will you pray your tears? Even as we're responding today, will you pray your tears? Will you pray your fears? Will you pray your worries? Will you pray your anger? Will you pray your suffering? Will you pray your discomfort? Will you pray your sin? Will you pray your guilt? Will you pray your shame? Trust in His power and your love. Trust in His love and your love. Your wisdom, your courage will be removed. Will you do that? Let's pray.